All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory. But today is a special episode. Once a year, once every other year, depending, um, uh, we get our pundit on in our post-election recap. Uh, we're pretty excited about this. We're going to be coming in hot. So, Sam, who's going to be here with us today? It's Greg Sargent, who uh, writes the Plumline column for the Washington Post and is omnipresent on Twitter. He has a very, I think, special role in my life. He's, I think of him as my own personal uh, hall monitor because I think we keep similar hours and uh, he intrudes into my DMs whenever I you know, transgress the liberal orthodoxy. And uh, I do often stand corrected and I'm sure I will today. And I'm very grateful that he's so generous with me. So it's generous to have him to be here too. The only reason I do that, Sam, is because I know you'll tolerate it, which I appreciate greatly. It's like sometimes early in the morning, you need a pummeling dummy and you're right there. Absolutely. This, this is this is the least fun sliding into the DM story I've ever heard in my entire life. But we'll, we'll, we'll get, we're going to get to this right after the break. So everyone take a pause and we'll be right there. All right. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's another Yale Law School podcast that you should check out. It's called Entitled, a podcast about why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Join YLS clinical professor Claudia Flores and University of Chicago law professor Tom Ginsburg as they travel the world getting the weeds of thorny human rights debates. Subscribe to Entitled wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Greg. So uh, I didn't look back at, uh, at your own predictions, but you definitely have been on fire, uh, uh, both analyzing the results and on Twitter. Uh, and I just want to get your initial take as to why no red wave uh, transpired and what what we, what lessons we draw from uh, that that fact. Well, I mean, you know, I, I do think I got some things wrong in the run up. I, I actually came pretty close to picking all the Senate races. Uh, right now, we're um, looking at the likelihood that Democrats will uh, win the Senate after uh, the Arizona Senate race is called and the Nevada Senate race is called. I think that that's going to happen probably within days, both those things. And then, yeah, by the way, everyone, we're recording on Friday, November 11th. Um, obviously, a lot of election left to go, but. Okay. All right. Um, so yeah. Anyway, so I think it's I think it's still a little early to say why there was no red wave. Uh, it was a, it was a pretty high turnout election on both sides. It's looking more and more like abortion rights played much more of a role than anybody really thought they would. I mean, including myself, I, I, I actually accepted the official narrative, uh, official emerging media narrative that it had faded. And by the way, we should say that Republicans did an extraordinarily good job of, of spinning the the uh, pending red wave in a way that that uh, really the media kind of swallowed whole, which is one of the reasons that I think we we were all caught so off guard by Democratic overperformance. But it is looking very clearly like Democratic overperformance took place in places where the abortion right was genuinely at stake. Uh, the sweep of those three governorships in the blue wall states, for instance, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, really had to be heavily driven by the fact that there were Republican legislatures or there are Republican legislatures in both those places. 
And as a result, it really was on the ballot, right? Abortion rights really were on the ballot. And the amount of ads that was that the, you know, the amount of money that went into ads saying that over and over and over was pretty extraordinary. So I think that's a big part of this. Another big part is MAGA, right? Um, much to our pleasant surprise, I think the fact that uh, election deniers were running in a lot of these states um, really did help boost Democratic turnout. And so you did actually see something of a defense of democracy on the part of voters. So I think those two things together appear to be pretty important driving roles. Um, but I, I do want to stress it's early yet to say. Yeah. So this actually struck me too, which is that like the, this election sound seemed a great deal. Like it's like the MSNBC election. It's like all the issue, the issues were like social issues that people can understand. The polls were basically right. The parties didn't have deep platforms. Neither one of them issued like policy platforms. The economic issues were somewhat muted and we can get into that in a little bit. Um, uh, polarization, like states basically looked like we did, but candidate quality turned out to matter. It was like it was like a, an election fully understandable through the mind of Lawrence O'Donnell, um, which uh, which which like is very frustrating for academics and such. But like it actually seemed to like track that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Uh, you know, I, I guess I hate to use the the term normie lib, but you know, the normie libs maybe won this time. Um, you know. It, it's true that candidate quality really mattered a whole lot. And I think it's fair to say that Trump did sort of force some really bad candidates on Republicans. Um, but, you know, I think people, voters really seem to have, judging by at least the, the public polling, at least, voters really seem to have understood this election as uh, putting at stake some very big things like the fundamental right to bodily autonomy and, you know, democracy itself. Just to avoid overconfidence, you know, so in the Nate Cohn theory that you're, you know, repeating and, you know, I I, I just think we've got this difficulty of filtering out factors. Um, And I could say it was really abortion and you shouldn't mix up this confounding variable of the defense of democracy. I can't prove it you can't prove the reverse. I don't know how you would. And like more generally, we have a lot of Republican crazies who won, um, especially in the House, depending on where they were running and everything else going on. So how do we, I mean, we have to, at least you professionally and us, you know. For today. uh, (laughs) Unprofessionally have to just like make, you know, pretty wild speculative guesses and is there any quality control we can b- impose before just, you know, confirming our priors, which I will certainly do uh, in, in anything I say about what's going on? Well, you know, I, I, like I say, I think we got to preface this by saying that we're speculating, right? <clears throat> because on some level, this will always be guesswork, okay. right? But in terms of what you said about a lot of crazies winning, I, I think there is a response to that. You know, it's true that a lot of election, I, I mean, I don't like the phrase election deniers, but it's so damn convenient and quick. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to use it with that caveat. It's true that a lot of them won in the House, but it, 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 I don't think that's really that telling a metric because, you know, a lot of these Republicans were incumbents. A lot of them were running in safe districts. 
Whereas you compare that to the gubernatorial and state secretary of state candidates in statewide races in real swing states, there is that's a very different matter from some House Republican running in a in a 65-35 Republican district. That's true. Although you, you still have the abortion thing that could interfere. But, you know, I want to get into later, you know, why there 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 was there we still have no exact commitment from the democrats to nationalize abortion rights activism and so the theory that you're you're vetting is really you know talking about uh contesting abortion state by state which is totally reasonable but if that's the case then these state level elections would be where abortion is going is going to be decided for your average, you know, voter, et cetera. Isn't the strong case for abortion being the central, like, like it'd be like the two islands of Republic, big islands of Republican overperformance or places where abortion was kind of laid to rest. Uh, so DeSantis not going for beyond the 15 week ban and then New York, like it's seeming like it was off the table and not being, I mean, despite uh, uh, Hochul's, um, like it's like focus on it like it was not the dominant issue in the campaign yeah i mean that's 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 a critical point because just to, to reiterate right in those three blue wall states you had republican legislatures which meant that the choice of governor actually did would determine whether the abortion rights survived in those states or not so you know i do want to say though sam i absolutely agree that it really could be much more related to abort the, re- the results could reflect have a lot more to do with abortion than democracy. I, I, I don't good. deny that for a second. Good, good. Well, that's critical. That's mission critical for some argument we want to have in a bit. But yeah. So 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 Sam, you had a you you came out hot after the election, um, uh, slaying some of that old time Sam Moyne religion on in the Guardian. So um, why don't you give us your take, your post election take? Well, so I no, I I want to just have it, you know, another opportunity this time publicly to kind of get Greg to correct me on some things because you know it's his episode, but it you know it, it's it's really about like what what the Democrats could have done and must do now because we can you know we can get within Beltape Beltway punditocracy and say oh it's uh, it's amazing that. This election wasn't worse. The House was lost. The Senate, okay, the Democrats maintain control, and that's going to be critical. But you know, the basic, if from you know from far away, it looks like this election is just one more gridlock election. Uh, and it, it, if if you care about the American future, you care about some transformative election, uh, and. You know, I've been, you know, saying, as David fairly points out for many years now, that um, the resistance focus on, you know, just whether we have democracy when it has not really been under threat, uh, uh, at least yet, has distracted us as a country and distracted the Democrats in particular from building a supermajority coalition. Now, maybe this election wasn't the right time. Uh, to break through with that, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there will need to be a time. And then we do need to get much more into, I think abortion, you know, which you, you, I think we've all acknowledged played a decisive role uh, 
in in the election, but also, you know, Joe Biden's economic program. And I, I, I think the left view of this election is the Rust Belt is responding to the 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 shift that we've seen from Donald Trump and then Joe Biden to try to, you know, onshore jobs and respond to neoliberalism belatedly. And that hasn't happened enough, clearly, because we're still in gridlock. Uh, And so the column in The Guardian basically says, let's lay, you know, our obsession with Donald Trump and the end of democracy to, to, to rest in order to build democracy in the first place, especially by confronting a neoliberalism. And the, the Democrats have not really tried to do so, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, and, and Greg will will definitely push back on that. And as we know from Saurabh Amari's uh, column in the New York Times, you know, there are people on the right who want to make the Republicans the working class party. And I don't think they can secede. I don't think Greg thinks so either. But that doesn't mean that the Democrats automatically do. And so that's how we should look at this election. Okay, I'm I'm not going to disagree for a second with with the fact that uh, I'm going to. (laughs) You go first. Go first. Go, Greg. No, no. Greg will disagree with some things in what I said. No, listen. You know, I I think I think you know, and in fact, I think you generously tweeted some of my pieces arguing this. Yeah. That the that the Biden shift towards onshoring, towards something more economically populist, you know, towards a, 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 I guess a break from neoliberalism. I I don't really know if that's the right framing, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll accept it for now because I know that I'm, I'm in your I'm I'm in your uh, I'm on your turf now, so I've got to talk this way. Um, so, but no, seriously, I mean, I absolutely agree that 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 that. Biden and many other Democrats have really tried to move the party in a new direction on economics and that that mattered. Um, of course, there are some downsides there, too, which I, I'd like to hear you address. I mean, there's Biden uh, reading the Trump years and the need for a more economic populist message to mean that he also has to keep some of Trump's immigration policies in place, which I don't think you would agree uh, is humane, to use a, a particular word. Point but, of phrase. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but anyway, I, I don't really see why there's a contradiction here. I, I, I've never really bought that there was this sort of resistance obsession with Trump and with democracy that somehow, you know, was anti-class politics or, you know, was Panera wine mom politics in some sense. I mean, you know, Trump, in the, the threat of Trump engaged millions and millions and millions of people uh, in politics in a new way, and I think that's good. Um, and a lot of those voters voted for things like the Medicaid expansion in red states. They fully supported this move towards uh, a much more robust uh, posture on climate change, which was historic, if not the Build Back Better that we wanted. This coalition did those things. And to write off millions and millions and millions of voters as wine mom slash resistance slash um, Panera voters or whatever you know slur we feel like pulling out of our butts at the moment, um, just, I think, denigrates people's legitimate political aspirations and also squanders a chance to 
bring them into a coalition where they can actually, you know, accomplish the things we want to accomplish. So I want to suggest that Sam's column was all wrong. It was all wrong in like a lot of ways. I want to quickly go through the, the way it sounded to me. I couldn't get out of my head. The, um, the Christopher Walken talking to blue, blue oyster cult skit. All I need is more cowbell. The only plausible response to all any input at all. Um, was more cowbell, or in this case, uh, more, more the, the way to respond to any political input is to exactly enact my political base. And so I think he misinterprets the first two years of the Biden administration and then misinterprets the election. So I'm going to quickly say other two things. One is that the Biden administration is as far down Sam Wynn's politics as America will ever be, as far as I can tell. It's like um, Sam complains about uh, withdraws from Afghanistan, reduces very substantially bombing, doesn't do it all the way to where you want, but like it's very far down the line. Similarly, is extremely, uh, extremely populist in terms of its uh, economic plan for um, the modern Democratic Party. Like doesn't remove any of the China tariffs. Um, uh, includes Buy America for Everything, um, does a huge amount of social welfare expansion, um, you know, uh, uh, stimmies, uh, and um, the, the ARP included a huge amount of spending, um, a, a, a very large amount of spending. Um, and uh, it was, it wasn't a long, big program like Obamacare, but it was a very large amount of money. Um, and uh, the central political problems they faced coming into the midterms were that none of this stuff was that popular. Um, and so the they weren't talking about, I mean, this was also was called another gridlock election. This was the most productive Congress in a very, very, very long time um, uh, um, uh, due to all sorts of factors. But a lot happened in the last two years, uh, some of it bipartisan and a lot of it not bipartisan. Um, but the central political problems they faced coming into the election were the exact products of that Stuff. So um, uh, the central political problem for Biden was inflation, and every credible observer understands inflation to at least be partially caused by the excesses of the ARP, um, and um, the refu they refused to do a lot of things that could have limited inflation. There are exactly these policy problems, you know, like Chinese tariffs would have, re renewing them would have reduced inflation. Um, uh, uh, Ukraine was a political winner. You know, like, it's like a whole variety of things that were like the, what they understood their challenge in the election was stepping away from the move that Sam thinks they should make in response to the election and going with another direction, going in with cringe core, uh, you know, um, election, uh, you know, democracy at stake and abortion as the two central issues. And so the, the, like, because the first problem was misunderstood, the set, the election was then misunderstood in the column. And so what we're left with is like um, just someone saying the only solution to any problem is being more like me. And I, that just seems kooky to me. Well, no, I'd like to hear Greg on this because, you know, th this is, you know, this is a, a, a fair critique I, wh where I think we just differ is in the horizons of our imagination as usual. So you've seen some things and I agree that bills were passed who could disagree and money was spent. Um, and yet that's baby steps. And, uh, it's ridiculous to say it, it was the biggest thing in American history it, because we saw economic populism in the 1930s, uh, within its own limits. Uh, and to compare, I mean, I thought we already had all agreed that in spite of these bills, the relief plan and even the infrastructure and uh, inflation reduction acts, 
we we were we were agreed that Biden was no FDR. Oh, no and FDR, as you say, but it's a big he, deal still. I mean, so big. It's deal. a big deal, but compared to what? And if you're interested in things like inequality, tax rates, welfare state policy, you know, notwithstanding the relief plan, build back better, as Greg said, was cut, then you you see this as promising. But uh, it's over, too, because the House is gone. Yeah, I understand. OK, so let me let me let me throw a challenge at you, Sam, on this. So so why why couldn't the let's say the fully ambitious build back better had passed the one, you know, that the that emerged from the Biden framework in, in the fall uh, last fall? Would that come a little where would you put that? Where would you put that on your scale of 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 um, uh, ambition? Oh, that would have been, you know, far beyond. Uh, I mean, it's still, you know, it would be kind of uh, uh, something that still leaves a lot to be desired because the, that kind of that kind of program is just can we have some basic humanity in the United States for those who are the worst off, uh, which is, you know, remains obviously like a scandalous omission. But we, what we don't have is yet is a kind of reimagination of you know the market and a con- control on on plutocracy in our second gilded age, and that is that that's the big ticket. I want to try to to get at this what you're trying to say um, in a different way. So why didn't the Biden framework pass? Well, I know you're you want to say Joe Manchin. Well, it passed the House, right? I mean, so, so yeah, yeah. you know, well, the, the, but, the, the, the House so, Democrats who are off, like, pursuing January 6th investigations because they're I'm, I'm, deludedly I'm, thinking Trump matters and there's a threat. I'm not the they journalist, dude. So we don't know. We, You know, I'm a historian who knows that when you look back, uh, you need uh, a lot of time and a lot of access to secrets to know how deals were made. Now, you, you and I have definitely differed on progressive strategy and whether, you know, certain bills should have been held hostage so that others could pass and so forth and so on. But th- there were choices made. And I don't accept that, um, you know, we live in the best possible world and Joe, you know, there couldn't have been better outcomes. Uh, because it depended on choices and ideology and interest, and and and, but I, can I prove that? Absolutely not, because I don't have the receipts. I'm just, as you said, we're I'm speculating for sure. Well, I mean, one thing we could do is just sort of accept at face value that Joe Manchin opposed it and that Kirsten Sinema. I do accept it. that. So, I do accept that. where do we get this super? Here's my question: Where do we get the supermajority coalition for New Deal tra- style transformation? If the 49th and 50th senators um, among Democrats wouldn't support it, where does this uh, supermajority coalition come from? I mean, Joe Manchin is from a state that needs that transformation more than just about any state in the country, Sam. Right. So why is it that a state with so many Trump voters, the ones who live in a time when Democratic presidents who, unlike Franklin Roosevelt, don't go to the people and say, this was my mandate. Joe Biden, you know, rarely goes to the people. 
Obama rarely did as well. But when Biden did, it was to say democracy's on the line in this election. So you now realize we, that going to the people actually really bad for legislative outcomes, right? So the, when the president goes to the people, all the evidence suggests that the bills get more less popular rather than more popular. It's a very, very, very solid political science finding that the president coming out for something is like the way to make something unpopular because it's a way to make sure that you get no buy-in from anyone who has any reason to be angry with the president. So it's like um, Biden going to the people. You're like, would that work? How popular is he? Okay, this is all fair. Now, look, you know, we we are locked into a certain trajectory in in this particular, you know, last couple of years that, you know, I do think we should interpret this election uh, with all due respect to David along the lines I'm suggesting, because the question is, what what candidates should we have? Got to have more president should claim what? Well, that's right. Got a fever. Got a fever. It's It's fevers for more cowbell. Well, all I can say is, you know, it, it, are you accepting this gridlocked country? No, but Sam, uh, if, and, we, if, if we're going to not accept it, we can't say things like, I don't know why Joe Manchin didn't do this. Maybe there was some secret backroom deal that was presided over by, you know, secret a whole a cabal of plutocrats. Well, we know there was a backroom deal because what what why did the progressives release the infrastructure bill. There's no answer to that unless, until we- Because the infrastructure bill wasn't going to work as leverage on Mansion. Yeah. There's no way it would have worked. This is the thing. I mean, we're talking now about sending Joe Biden down to West Virginia where Trump beat Joe Biden by what, 40 points? And we're thinking that's gonna put pressure on Mansion, Or you think Joe Manchin's gonna feel pressure from the fact that AOC is telling him what to do? Right. That only makes it harder for him to do anything. That that is fair. But I just returned to the fact, you know, F- John Fetterman, that the elections and the Rust Belt seem to suggest if we look at Democratic victory there that, you know, providing economic help to suffering workers improves your electoral chances. Of course. And I agree guess with that. what? West, where's West Virginia? So, le- you know, I. Can I look? It, it, you're making. I, I'm a. I'm a realist, and of course, these politicians have to make very difficult choices. Were there no better ones? Are there no better ones? There, I. There, I think we need to keep pressure on, and insist that we hold the Democrats to the standard. You know, and it's not. You know, it's not cowbell. It's whatever will work, to achieve an exit from gridlock. Right. I don't think I anyone believe disagrees it is economic. It, it, I do. I believe it is, you know, soaking the rich and redistribution. But if I'm wrong about that, tell me what it is. No, listen, let me, let me stress something. I absolutely agree that the results in the Rust Belt do confirm that delivering economic help to some degree, at least, uh, gives you a political lift. You know, I, I think Fetterman sort of followed a similar model to Biden by shaving down the margins in some of the much more difficult areas while also running up the, the score in the suburbs, right? Um, so shaving those margins in, in, in rural and exurban uh, and sort of small metro areas, and which, they're, you know, Pennsylvania is a really good state to test this kind of stuff on, but shaving those margins does depend on representing in some sense, uh, a populist message, right? And 
up, except that they didn't really run on a populist message. Well, but there's a the lot thing. of economic messaging. This is the there's, thing, right? There's some, but like a lot of it was not that, right? So this is the thing that, like, I, I, like how much talk about? I, mean, there, I think it was in the Washington Post. That Democrats haven't mentioned the infrastructure bill. No one even knows that it passed um, because they weren't running. On, and similarly, they certainly weren't running on the ARP because people acknowledge that the thing that was actually driving people's uh, economic concerns was inflation, which everyone knew had some relation to this. And so the belief that like, if only, again, it's just, it's, it, it, the, I think that you're overrating to some degree, uh, both of you, um, um, the degree to which this image is like, is actually popular. I think that if I were you. Well, you would. I mean, I would, because I think it's bad also. So, I mean, some, some of it's bad, some of it's good. I'd say. So it, you but, got your own cowbell, it sounds oh, like. Oh, no, no, no. But I, here's the thing is that if I were you, I would be issuing a different message, which is like, that like, they got all of this stuff done and didn't pay an, an election price for it um, because they focused on abortion and elections. That the abortion election is the is the is is, is is it plays the same role that social issues have for conservatives forever, which is like we can talk about X over here that's popular and ignore the fact that there's some deep unpopularity in the things we actually want to achieve. And so I actually think that that would be a you should be you should be thankful. To um, you know, pink hats and uh, and, uh, and 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 democracy pe- and uh, you know Trump focused people because they allowed for this giant amount of, of legislative achievement to happen along lines that you kind of wanted and still right, not pay a political let, price. Let me just thank Greg, you know, from the bottom of my heart for just teaching me so much over the past couple of years <laughs> about the assault on democracy and what the January sixth committee had uncovered. Because it's been you, you that has been a big part of your beat, uh, and maybe I have to concede it may it may have you know played a positive role here. Although you've also conceded maybe it didn't, and and in the end, you know, do we need to get beyond it? Is the fever breaking? Hopefully, the fever breaking on the right can lead the fever the counter fever to break on the left. And we can really talk about what, you know, what's ailing this country and what would, what would cure it. But what if there's no agreement on that? I mean, you know, I, this, I want to return to this. I, I, you described yourself as a realist earlier. So how do we explain the fact that new deal style uh, transformation was an absolute non-starter in a state that needed it more than any other one, maybe, um, West Virginia is, is full of, of non-college whites and, and, and you know, and is, is economically really struggling on all kinds of levels. Why did Joe Manchin say to himself, there's no way I can sell any of this stuff to, in this state? Well, first off, he's the wrong messenger. I mean, if he doesn't believe it, he, he's not, you know, going to be the one to shift from the neoliberal message if he's in, you know, corporate pockets. But, you know, the main explanation has to be that when you abandon people, it turns out that they are, are very unlikely to believe you. Uh, and that they, they don't believe that you're there to help them anymore. And you, you have, you have a really difficult challenge at that point to convince them otherwise. But and they keep electing him. The, absolutely. I mean, right, so why? I mean, that's the question. I don't I'm talking about the larger the party. So I'm saying, but, but we're, I thought we were talking about why can't the Democrats with with, 
you know, a, a, a more progressive message win in, in these states. And, you know, I, I think that's a really difficult problem. You know, Thomas Frank's written about it, Arlie Hochschild, so forth and so on. And we, we're, we're not going to get out of that debate because, again, this is a great result relative to a red wave, but it's an intractable problem that no one has figured out how to solve reaching voters when you actually want to help them uh, and they don't, they vote the other way. If we're going to be realists though, we also have to say to ourselves that there are structural factors in elections, that inflation is, you know, that, that voters vote on conditions, right? That they hold the people in power responsible for conditions, whether they're, resp- they're responsible for those conditions or not, that they're, they're not often, very clear on who's to blame for what. Now, how, how does that fit into a realistic picture of, of, of or a real, realistic assessment of how we get to a supermajority? I mean, I don't mean that in a, a way, in an argumentative way necessarily. It's a real problem, right? I mean, right. let's face it, the, the conditions in this election were tremendously difficult for Democrats, right? And not through necessarily fault of their own, in part one because of inflation, which I don't think you can maybe blame some of that on ARP, right? But, you know, there are global factors. Um, And then also, you know, it was also a struggle because midterms after a presidential victory are a struggle for the party that won the presidential victory. And this is is intractable, right? you know, we all kind of bang our heads against that problem, but there's you can't just sort of say, okay, well, New Deal style populism and the correct kind of communication is the answer to it if you're identifying the problem in, in, in such structural terms. I, I just want, I mean, we, we should we should go to some other takes because Greg had a bunch of great takes in his column and I want to go to them also. But like the when you hit the moment that the, sol- the solution to the political problem is the adoption of the things that I think are good because the people will like it if I finally, they finally agree, if I like, if they agree, if, I, if, they, if the party or someone does what I say they should do normatively, it's an assumption that like people like you that much. That like it's this belief that like if they only really knew me, they'd really love me. They'd really, really, really love me. And in the past, they loved someone. It just strikes me as like um, it's like a a weird uh, a weird form of egotism in which it's like it's like a it's like um, uh, the thing that I think is good is necessarily going to be popular in the short or medium term. It's like not obviously so. I like a lot of things that are not popular. Um, uh, you know, like I, what, I think congestion pricing is one of the best things we could do for in this country. I think it's a great public policy. Do I think that po- Democrats should run on or Republicans should run on congestion pricing? I absolutely do not. Like it's not popular. I don't know. Like it's uh, it's uh, maybe you'll prove popular if you enact it and yada yada. But whatever. It's one of these things. So it's like it's like um, it's just not the case that we can assume that the things we think are good are necessarily also popular. You know, I want you to take over the the duty of fighting with Sam at five in the morning on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done, uh, man. I, you bring that on yourself because I, I just am minding my own business. You are just, you're very good at baiting people. 
So I have a question for Greg. Um, so one of the really notable things of the last two elections has been racial depolarization. That they've been, you've seen a increase in black and Hispanic vote for Republicans. And we're seeing a little bit, it was much more dramatic. The biggest shift happened in the last election, but we saw an increasing of this, like rural black voters that the Democrats in majority black districts in the South are winning by smaller margins than they did in previous elections because there seems to be some ebbing of democratic control. Do you think of this as a fundamentally healthy thing for democracy? in that it is uh, like if the parties are a little less divided by race, we will have a like some of the racial, like the really most nasty parts of our racial politics maybe a little uh, a little eased? Or do you think of it as a really dangerous thing for democracy or for our country or whatever, bad, um, or particularly for the Democrats, because one of the really notable things around the world has been that uh, minority voters, like the Democrats are one of the only like standing center-left parties in the world. Um, and the thing that has kept them standing frequently has been um, uh, black and Hispanic voters. So what do you think of racial polarization in the election? Well, I'm going to evade the question by saying that I think we really don't know yet how real a phenomenon that is. I think there are some signs, scattered signs, early signs, I'll admit that. But there are some signs that that stuff isn't really, wasn't really much of a factor this time. I think in Texas, you're seeing a lot has to come in. We really need to know what happens in Arizona and Nevada, especially with Latino voters. We need to know more about what happened in Texas. And, 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 and you know, geographic differences play a huge role here. It's very hard to find single explanations for this stuff. I mean, George W. Bush did very well among Latinos. This is often forgotten. That didn't turn out to last very long. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to say that we should have our heads in the sand about this being a problem, potentially over the long term. All I'm saying is that we don't really know how serious a problem it is. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I do think that Democrats have to really be incredibly vigilant about what's going on, particularly with the Latino vote, because, you know, that is really a potential severe blow to them if that if that uh, realignment continues. And so the problem, I guess, for, for someone like Sam, I think, on this topic is he's not going to want to go for the popularist type of explanation, which holds that wokeness or, I don't know, racial liberalism or, and social liberalism are the problem. Um, and I don't either, but it, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to avoid engaging with that argument when this topic comes up. What do you think, Sam? Where are you on that stuff? I don't think we talk much about popularism, but. Well, I mean, it go it gets back to David's, uh, you know, claims about just how divergent, you know, the just is from the popular and a def- there's a huge divergence when it comes to David's notions of what we should do and and because those are so broadly rejected by I mean, so many I, people. I make no, no, no illusion that I'm popular. Yeah. When it comes to mine, no. Um, no, I th- look, I, I don't have very clear ideas about this, but I do strongly believe that the economic populist message uh, can construct um, better than some other approaches uh a tr- transracial working class majority. And in fact, that, that, and, and that's why I get so worried about, you know, you called them wine moms, which I've never 
views, but you are making choices amongst potential constituents in coalition building. Uh, and that, that really has always been my, my main worry about the, the things you say about using the anxiety about tyranny to recruit suburbanites and so forth into and bringing so many people into politics. Well, then you're not choosing the, the transracial working class as, 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 as the kind of backbone of your new coalition. But, you know, I don't want to, I agree with you that there are some really difficult challenges to face if you believe that uh, race is not just class and gender is not just class. And if you want to fight white supremacy and patriarchy, you know, you have to figure out how to do so. Um, when, you know, the, when certain ways of talking about them can be, you know, incredibly alienating to the very people you're trying to recruit into your coalition. All right. I'm going to reject the phrase anxiety about tyranny as the prime motivator of these voters, because I noticed, I know you slipped that in there to just needle me a little bit. So I'm going to take it on directly. All right. So, (laughs) so, you know, when you see people showing up at airports protesting the Muslim ban, or you see, you know, suburban housewives on a Black Lives Matter march, you know, is that anxiety about tyranny? Is this something we don't want? Um, right? Or the women's march? This, it, it's, we, I think we have to oh, be... it's all great. Yeah, I, just, I think we should be a little more tolerant of, of those voters' political aspirations. You know, a little excess, a little hyperbole here and there. Sometimes... It takes, you know, um, right? It, sometimes it takes some pretty starkly frightening imagery to motivate people, right? Um, but I think that the, the, the coalition that rose up against Trump, right, was a, a really admirable thing in a lot of ways. Uh, if you look at uh, Theta Scott Pohl's research on this, I guess she did it with Putnam. I, I'm not sure who, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, right? she did. Or yes, yeah, she did some really interesting work first yeah. on the Tea Party and then on, yeah, after, after Trump was elected. Right. They documented what seemed to me to be something that we would think is, is positive, which was people pouring tremendous energy into, into organizing. And this, by the way, was, you know, also transracial, right? Because it was all about um, stepping up and defending minority rights. Uh, it was all about stepping up and defending women's rights and, and creating a broad transracial coalition to do that. And then, you know, it, it isn't just sort of a cynical play to take those voters and then tell them that they're under threat of tyranny and then try and, you know, maneuver them into a coalition that will do some big economically populist stuff. I mean, these voters actually do sometimes come through and do the right thing when it comes to things like the Medicaid expansion in red states. You know, a lot of working class whites, I think, oppose that stuff. And I think that's a problem that we have to face head on, especially if you want this transracial working class uh, coalition to arise. Sam was sitting in Greenwich, uh, actually helping the Republican candidate because he didn't want those Democratic voters running, voting for Ned Lamont. So he's like going out there, not you. You're the wrong kind of voter. Get out of here, man. Well, there's there's a short term a problem that may interfere with how you solve the long term. But let's let's pivot because Greg, we we don't want to keep you all day, but we do want to 
leave some time to talk about the consequences of this election for the next two years. I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on two things. First, does this election quiet the calls for Joe Biden to stand down and for Democrats to find someone like a new standard bearer? Second, um, I just want to hear more about what the consequences are going to be of having the House in Republican control and Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, replacing Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House and so forth. So what what is it going to be like on Twitter for the next two years or on Mastodon if that's where we end up? Are you going to Mastodon? Are you on, on there yet? I'm not. I, I can't. I signed up for some German one Um and I just can't figure it out. I can't either, man. I was like I, staring I, at this I just, and it was just like, swimming I, in front of me. I put too much effort into understanding Twitter. And uh, <laughs> I, or I can get a, a friend, Scott I Shapiro, found, here. I to found Twitter me. to be great in the last couple of days, actually. It's uh, like, it's like um, people ever, ever since like the, the early moments of the abandonment or the, of the rapture or whatever, um, it was, um, it's like, it's like been pretty, I mean, again, like I don't get flamed or like get uh, too much. And so I don't have a pretty, but, I, but I've kind of found Twitter to be like, it's been a great couple of days on Twitter, actually. Um, I, particularly on Ukraine Twitter has been great the last couple of days. Actually, you know, before we get to the, these questions, I, I'd like to go back and say to for one more second to talk about that other stuff, because there's a point that I, I think is maybe, you know, germane here that we should talk about if, if you're willing. You know, so talking about suburban and educated voters, right? Um, I've long thought that there's a chance that you use climate as the kind of gateway to get those voters into uh, into a place of supporting you know, a, a much more economically just order. And in a way, if you think about it, you're starting to see that with something like uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Uh, you know, climates used to be kind of dismissed as a, a an obsession of people who could afford to to not, you know, who, who could afford to, 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 to move away from fossil fuels in a way that maybe, you know, real Americans in, in, in the heartland couldn't, Right. But now we're sort of seeing a weird uh, shift in the in the paradigm here, where the pro um, the pro climate position is actually becoming a pro manufacturing job position, in the sense that here you've got the coalition that that uh, defeated Trump, supporting enormous expenditures on the creation of green manufacturing jobs in places that are that we think of as left behind and and you know so there you've got the the quote-unquote wine mom slash panera slash whatever normie lib coalition or at least that part of the coalition being supportive of something that i think we could see as uh really economically very progressive and 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 um transformative at the at the at the the cost of achieving environmental goals so like one of the really notable like it's like characteristic like like the the buy america provisions in the in the in the uh, electric car subsidies uh the um are like characteristic of someone like a group that is like actually not that committed to achieving green energy goals i mean they do some um but like they were wherever there were sacrifices to be made it was towards the um like a you know blue collar vision of the american economy uh, at, at the cost of actually achieving environmental goals. Yeah, but at the same time, though, there really is some serious overlap when you're talking about major public expenditures. 
in, in the creation of, green, of, of manufacturing jobs in green energy. I agree that, look, it's hardly a perfect bill, right? Or, but, you know, that's what happens when Congress does big things. There, there's some bad stuff in there that you need to do to get the Joe Manchins of the world to support it. I mean, I'd put it a different way. I mean, and this, I'm way out on a limb here, but, you know, I am very uncertain that the economic populist goal ought to be to restore manufacturing as we've known it. Um, and and th- that's the trouble of mortgaging, you know, what we think of as the left in, in the country to, to satisfying Joe Manchin. Um, and there was a cost for environmental goals. But I do think there's another view that um, that it, it, it kind of like is where you started the, your your point, which is that, you know, if you think that um, there's solidarity in response to threats, um, then like the environmental threat it is can drive a reformism of fear, you know, as someone once called it. And that could that could be a you know a, a a path out i just am very uncertain that the inflation reduction act in form is 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 the right path you know and will it get blocked you know relatively more quickly and fa- you know fail in its goals um, you know, too, too soon to kind of re- reach the goal. Um, that's what I'm worried. Well, about. that may be right. That may be the essential trade-off to get something this big across, you know, across the line. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, we started this conversation by talking about Biden political economy, right. Which is, you know, populist in some sense, it's about reshoring. It's about, uh, you know, not really winding back tariffs. It's about, you know, being, you know, using the government using, it's about industrial policy. And so maybe the way you get to something transformative on climate is by sort of packaging it in that packaging, uh, for, for better or worse. But I, I guess, you know, the, the point to me is that this might be a way to, to bring in a lot of these, you know, voters that are seen to be a threat to a transracial working class majority, meaning the, the wine moms and so forth, to a point where they can support something like what we want done, something, you know, robust, um, serious government intervention, something something along the lines of industrial policy that creates jobs and tough in you're, you're shaking your head. Oh, this should, I, I just don't say we. It implies it implies more agreement than exists. But keep going. Oh well, th- that's really it. I mean, I think right. I mean, so I I I know that I'm being naive about these voters and that they'll just sell us out as soon as they have the chance. Once the once the threat of Trump has disappeared, they'll suddenly all become Republicans again, according to Sam. Um, but you know, maybe we should try to get what we can while we have them in, in, in our coalition, and and that's in a way what passing the Inflation Reduction Act did, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so maybe we can go back to the question: Like, what do you think Congress is going to look like? Let's assume we have a Democratic Senate and we have a what we th- which is looking like a two or three seat Republican majority in the House. Is it going to be the funniest Congress ever? I don't think funny is the word for it. I think shit show is the word for it, uh, the phrase for it. I, that, that's funny. Shit shows are fun. No. Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I think it's going to be really, really terrible, right? Because 
Um, my, my, one of my main worries is that they're already threatening to do all kinds of things, right? I mean, Kevin McCarthy sure looks a bit more chastened now than he did before, right? It's kind of funny to think about how he was swaggering around saying, you know, Merrick Garland, don't throw out any, don't shred any papers. We're coming after you, <laughs> right? Um, and any company that dared express any support for the voting rights of African-Americans is going to get hauled up here and tortured, right? He's not so smug anymore right now, but, <laughs> but you know, the, the, I think there's a pretty large segment of, of House Republicans who still wants to do all sorts of things like that. Uh, they want to use the debt ceiling to try and leverage God knows what. Um, I think at, at a minimum, deep spending cuts, but I think probably other things too, like potentially trying to defund uh, investigations and prosecutions of Trump. I think that's a real thing that's going to be on the table. Uh, but anyway, so it's going to be harder and harder as the majority is slimmer and slimmer for Kevin McCarthy to manage that kind of outbreak from the MAGA caucus, right? It's going to be really hard. I mean, I don't see how, this is why I keep arguing for Democrats to just disable the debt limit now because they're, and and they're crazy if they don't do this. I, I I mean I talk to them sometimes about this, and what I get back is just stuff that sounds like it's out of another era, by which I mean the Obama years, right? Where they basically say, oh well, you know, they'll lose showdowns on this, just like they lost showdowns during the Obama years. Well, wait a minute, during the Obama years, like when they did that, you know, you had Democrats had to swallow terrible uh, fiscal policy in order to get past the crisis. So. And that's during the Obama years. Now you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Tucker Carlson setting, setting the agenda. And with Trump running for president in 2023, equating, you know, raising the debt limit with disloyalty to him. Um, I, I don't see how, how does a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, make a deal with Democrats to raise the debt limit under conditions like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree that the Democrats don't make a, at least a two and a half year extension during the, during the, um, like, they're out of their minds. Like, it's just too risky, too painful. But other than that, the Obama theory works pretty, might work well. Because, like, the if the Republicans can barely maintain a majority with a two-seat majority, you could be the best speaker in the history of the world and still have a real difficulty. But the Democrats will be able to run on nothing and say, look, look at, you know, like the 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 other parts of that move of like running against dysfunction and seem to me to like, I don't know. I mean, I'm no legislative strategist, but it seems pretty sound as long as the thing you're risking is not default of uh, you know, the Treasury default, you know, defaulting on bonds. You know, like I mean, the I, I you know, I've always been partial to the the platinum coin solution to the debt limit anyway. But it's a um, but like if, if they can avoid that one government shutdowns which is the other like standoff thing, seem to have very little political, like seem to always work well for the president and not create the end of the world. I just think the conditions are a little different in this case in the following way, right? So if you think about the Tea Party, like they nominally had fiscal priorities, right? Like they were supposed to stand for certain things fiscally. You know, it was heavily race motivated in reality, but, you know, superficially it was supposed to be a genuine it was supposed to represent a set of genuine fiscal priorities. These guys are a bit different, right? 
if you think about the the MAGA types, I would think that the that you know creating chaos and destruction for the higher end of putting Trump beyond accountability for you know his many you know potential crimes. Uh, that that's a that's a badge of honor for them. I, and there's no can you discern a single uh, scrap of any kind of fiscal impulse on the part of someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Boebert if she survives? Why you know why would they cave? Ever? Now, so I think the result would be that Republicans who don't want a disaster have to make a deal with Democrats, right? To to you know to do things like avert a, a avert default. But I just, it's, it's not clear to me how someone like Kevin McCarthy does that and survives when, I mean, I guess Trump is in a weakened state right now. And maybe this is an interesting point to think about, you know, a big wild card is how weakened Trump is. I mean, there's a lot of gleeful speculation that, that, including in my column that, you know, this can be the fever breaking because it seems as if, Republicans can see that that there's an alternative and that, you know, the trouble was not, you know, that they were so much in cahoots with Trump over the last years. It's that they they just thought they needed his voters uh, and they had to, you know, feign uh, allegiance to him. But that's not true now. and I think, you know, that, that's a hopeful view, obviously. Um, and obviously, I, I've been wrong so often that we could see him in office in two years. But it, it could be the beginning of not just the beginning of the end, but, you know, a, a real breaking point. And, and so, I mean, I don't know what you think about that, but I would love to hear what, where the Republican, you know, nominating contest is likely to look, you know, within a year well, I, I, I certainly wouldn't dismiss what, you know, the possibility of that, right? I, I don't know what happens to, to the Trump voters. Right? I, I would think that if they, if, that if Trump is no longer required to keep them in, in the Republican coalition, that would, you know, free up Republican elites uh, to go even further than they're going right now. It's just in, in, in kind of marginalizing Trump. Um, and, and I think you saw some sort of tentative efforts at that when Republicans floated the idea of maybe Trump should just, you know, postpone his presidential uh, announcement until after the Georgia runoffs. And of course, you know, I don't think Trump's going to do that. And a big tell will be how Republicans react to that. Right. Trump is continuing to test them in a major way. Right. Um, you know, if he does his announcement on Tuesday how Republicans react to that will be a very big clue as to whether they think they can, you know, keep his voters without him. Uh, But that aside, I think that there's like at least a chance that DeSantis is the one who can capture those voters. And maybe DeSantis is the one who, by doing that, makes it a little easier for Republican elites to really finely marginalized Trump, but then is that what we should wish for? I, I don't know. Is that, I mean, there are way, different ways of reading DeSantis, right? You can see him as a, a much more kind of deviously clever authoritarian than Trump, or you can see him as someone whose authoritarian bark would be worse than his bite and might try to kind of, once he captured the Trump base, would 
essentially keep his appeals to that, you know, authoritarian uh, impulse maybe more performative, like going after Disney with a, a tax exemption or whatever, and then getting the Fox News to turn it into a big thing, right? Um, but meanwhile, kind of trying to not actually use state power in the way that guys like J.D. Vance, I think, genuinely want. That was a, a real use of state power against a company that was descending. Don't, like, don't, don't get it twisted. Like, that was, I mean, it, it seems adorable, but, like, it was, like, really crazy. Oh, um, that's bad. Was, no, no, no question. I'm just saying that there are, like, kind of degrees of it. Believe me, I, I think DeSantis is a terrifying threat, okay? Uh, I don't, I don't discount that at all. All I'm saying is that I think we don't really know quite what he's really made of. If you look at guys like J.D. Vance and I think Blake Masters, and by the way, can I just say, if Blake Masters loses, this is going to be a very big deal, very big, because he represented the most sort of unvarnished and kind of, you know, virulent version of of this kind of far-right authoritarian populism of just about anybody. I mean, I think J.D. Vance is pretty bad, but... Although he didn't even mention Trump in his victory speech, which I thought was quite uh, revealing. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, I'm really hoping that J.D. Vance was just kind of using that that yeah. impulse in some sense. But I need, I don't know how many of, I don't know how many ads of uh, Blake Masters you've watched. Have you watched any of his ads? No, I've just I've just trusted your columns that he's very scary. His ads are pretty pretty awful. I mean, they really just show like they're almost like you know action video games with really like hordes of swarthy figures streaming across the border and machine gun fire and and him kind of running through the desert, you know, in slow motion. And then there's the one of him holding the the you know the the the, the weapon and saying this is for killing people. Um, Anyway, I got a little sidetracked there, but defeating him will be a very big deal. Um, but the point is that there's there's a genuine impulse on that side to actually use uh, the state in a major way to, you know, go after people like you, Sam. So, uh, so oh, and me too. Yeah, but. Is the um, yeah? I feel I feel I feel like I feel like that the, this is these distinctions between the three of us are not things that people who it's a but it's um a uh, the the. Just a quick thing on the election. I want no no Sam wants to ask like a final going. Oh no no Russia! Like, I got time. What is your favorite? What was the election? The the like the the narrower part of like the election you found most interesting? The single race you found most interesting? Because um, I have one, but I'm curious what yours is. I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that. I thought Fetterman being able to triumph despite the stroke was really kind of an incredible event to watch. Um, I feel fortunate to have gotten part of that right and part of it wrong. I underestimated how bad the debate performance would appear. Um, but it turned out, I think, that they were really able to tell that as a, as, as a sort, sort of comeback story and leverage Oz into the sort of the position of the, of the guy who everyone who has faced adversity, you know, in their lives hates. Right. And, and, I think we can't read too much into that being the reason Betterman won. There are all kinds of reasons. You know, he's very well known in Western New York. He's got a a long history there. Um, And then, of course, there's the fact that, you know, I hate the word authentic for this, but he clearly breaks the mold in some sense, maybe is the way to think about it. These types of things kind of add up 
Um, but I thought that race was really fascinating. Um, anyway. My, I will tell you what my interest was in. Oh, we'll hit a theme and then we'll go to Ford, which is that mostly incumbents did extremely well. That's actually like maybe the under one of the underlying incumbents did extraordinary. It's possible that no incumbent governor lost election. We'll see what happens in the, so the one that are yet. Or the senators, called. right? The Democratic or senators. senators. Right. The, the most underperforming incumbent governor by far was Kathy Hochul in New York. Um, and so I have like a story about why, so but basically why didn't come into so One reason is that because of the way the ARP worked, they got a huge amount of money. So they were able to pay for like whatever they wanted. It was like, it was like you know, the, the, there were no choices made in the last couple of years. And that had some real implications for um, the economy and for other things, but it had, it certainly removed any pressure to make tough choices for any state politician. Um, and that, what, but New York being the probably the worst governed state. I'm a New Yorker, um, and so I did, it's like the most uh, um, like saw the least of this benefit from all of this money because it was not like used for anything anyone wanted. It just kind of went into the maw of overspending and insanity that you see in New York. Um, and so I found the Hochul race to be really interesting because it's like uh, if there's a cost to being poor, running a state poorly, like New York should bear it. It, it's the worst run, you know, it's the most expensive subway line ever constructed, the most instructive, expensive prison ever constructed, the most barbaric, you know, it's just like everything bad. Um, and it's, um, it is a, uh, to me, like, as, as, I mean, I voted for Kathy Hochul. I think she's actually pretty good relative to some of her, the, the predecessors, and it's got a pretty good staff, but it's like bearing the cost of bad governance actually is like a, that, that governors bear any cost at all for governance results would be a very attractive thing about our political system. Yeah, that's a really, that's a fascinating way of thinking about it. I hadn't heard that. Can I ask where in New York you're from? Uh, the city, Manhattan. Yeah, me too. Ah, there you go. I grew up on the west well, side of Manhattan. Ah, I, I live on the upper west side of Manhattan, so there you go. I, um, I grew up on the lower west side, but yeah. yeah. There you go. In, in so, I, and I grew, up, I grew up on the east side. Anyway, um, this is a longer, this is a, 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 meet, a, a meet cute story on a podcast. No, it's a, um, a last question is the one I want to say. I'm going to like, so is Joe Biden going to run for re-election? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think a lot turns on whether Trump runs. There's, it, it's a whole, I think, I think he, he really genuinely felt it as a mission to defeat Trump. I, I've always felt that that's actually, that wasn't just sort of a story that they told. There was, a, I think, some reporting about a conversation he had with Obama uh, heading into the 2020 election where he, he, Obama told him something like, you know, you don't have to do this, Joe. And I think probably Obama was actually saying, don't do this, Joe, you're going to lose again. <laughs> right. Um, but and Biden said, no, I have to do it. You know, I have to. And, and if you look at how he launched his camp original, his first campaign with the Charlottesville stuff and how he's, you know, from time to time has spoken about the country being kind of, you know, the American experiment itself, whatever you think of that. I mean, I think he genuinely believes it. Right. And. You know, I think if Trump runs again, he's going to tell himself that the advantage of incumbency is absolutely crucial to try to prevent and finally stamp out this threat once and for all. Uh, I don't know if it can be or not, but that's a separate conversation. I, I think it becomes harder for him to run again if Trump doesn't. Right. Because I, I don't think either one of you would want to see them have an open field and you know, I don't know what happens if, if Biden 
doesn't run. I'm, I'm, I don't know what Kamala Harris does or how that whether she faces a challenge. I just don't really have a sense. But I think probably we don't. I don't really relish the idea of them having a big open field and it just being Biden on our side. I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? I, I, you know, I, we really just wanted to ask, does, does the not as terrible as we thought result in these elections, in a sense, quiet the calls from the outside? Yeah, of course, if he's if he's in such steep decline that he himself knows he can't sustain it, uh, especially if Trump's not a threat, quote unquote, anymore. And he, Biden thinks he can leave that that'll be on him. But it is it is our Democrats going to kind of stop uh, calling for him to, you know, step aside now that, uh, you know, he can claim a kind of vic- runner victory lap on this, uh, you know, red trickle. Yeah, I think for absolutely, it's absolutely true that that the you know this this um, this outcome makes it a lot harder for people to vocally try to prod Biden to not run. Yeah, I it, also you did get a uh, of the one person who probably the big winner of the election is probably Gretchen Whitmer. Like Michigan is like the Democratic biggest success story. They flip the state houses. Like, like if anyone, like if there's one winner here, it would, I think that like she'd be the one who won the day. And, and on on many levels, including levels that kind of go to what we've been discussing all throughout here, right? I mean, remember she faced the, you know, she stared the monster right in the face, right? Like they really had a plot to kidnap her, right? And she dealt with the most virulent pathologies of the right during the COVID stuff. Um, and, you know, I think there was a time where the feeling among a lot of Democrats was that she was pretty badly wounded by that, right? She was perceived as being excessive on COVID. Um, and, and I think people felt that her national uh, trajectory had been pretty badly uh, upended by that occurrence, but she seems to have come through it. And, and now it has become sort of a positive part of her story, right? In the sense that she was able to manage the state through those types of profound divisions and emerge with a solid victory. And so, yes, I 100%. By the way, there's another storyline that emerges related to this, which is, and related to to Biden's fate, which is that now, after an outcome like this, I mean, compare it to what might have been. Like, imagine a real wipeout where four Democratic incumbent senators go down. Uh, you know, Republicans win 25 seats in the House, just washing away a lot of the, you know, the people who were elected in 2018 and many others. You would have not have a sense of there being any kind of deep bench at all. Right. Imagine some of these governors getting ousted. But now the feeling is very strong that there's a resiliency uh, and, and kind of real ranks of of talent, um, including younger people throughout the party that I think, you know, that, that that it's a powerful story if you think about it that way. Right. Someone like Gretchen Whitmer really represents this kind of class that survived some of the tribulations of of this moment, right, over the last few years, and kind of thrived through them and managed them and figured out how to, um, you know, manage the politics of them. 
And so I think that also makes the conversation about Biden's future more complicated. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on and dealing, like, bringing some real pundit expertise to two clowns who are, who are trying, trying, wearing the hat for a day. Um, so I, I, we really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks very thanks much. Greg. It was a pleasure. You know, I've been, I've been wanting to do this with Sam for a while and, you know, and I, I really enjoyed watching, you know, someone else torture him. That was uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I didn't. I mean, is that something that goes on on the podcast a lot? Do you guys kind of go at each other? Uh, Never with this intensity, I must say. Uh, <laughs> so I hope I have emerged, you know, unscathed. Or I, I, I tried to bring it. I was like, I was like, I was on the McLaughlin group. I felt very, Absolutely. very good about the thing. So there you go. Um, well, all right, Greg. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks, Greg. Yep.